Hi, I'm Kieran Cook, and welcome to At Source Podcast, a place where natural health and well-being are at the forefront of the conversation. Gain useful insights direct from the source from doctors, industry experts, wellness advocates, and everything in between. This is a place for busy people who want to get to the core of health and wellness with information about the latest health advances and trends. In this series, we talk with and learn from inspiring leaders from all walks of life, touching on important topics that will help answer some of the key questions about natural health, well-being, fitness, and all things direct from the source. A warm welcome to Cherry Farrow, who is the CEO of Successful Minds Institute. Welcome today. It's so great to have you here on the At Source podcast powered by Nature B. She is a motivational speaker, international best-selling author, master trainer of NLP, stage hypnotist, and master coach, empowering individuals to overcome any presenting problem, personal or professional, huge or tiny, by teaching them how to be mindfit. Wow, mindfit. I do love that, Cherry. So today we're going to be diving deep into the concept of mindfitness. But before that, I did want to ask you about your journey into mental well-being. How did you begin? <laughs> Long story. I was probably um, lovely to meet you, Karen, as well. Um, long story. I probably started many, many years ago. Uh, my bookshelves were littered with those self-help books, you know, because I knew I had a pretty dis- dysfunctional upbringing. So, you know, I'd experienced what you know would be classified as a significant trauma, having um, you know uh, physical, sexual, emotional abuse, and I guess I knew. I always had this sense that there was got to be a better way. There's got to be something that can help me that I didn't have to carry around all this stuff with me. And interestingly enough, um, I had a long career in local government, uh, being deputy CEO of our local government entity here. And when I sort of gave that away to have my third child, after my third child was born, I um, couldn't just sit still. So I started little part-time activities and I started actually working for Weight Watchers and became a meeting leader and area manager, or not manager, um, field um, manager. And I I opened up a new meeting here and through that people were having great success until a certain period of time and I thought there's got to be something, you know, how come they can start this program, have such great success and then fall off the wagon as the the terminology is. So I sort of thought it's got to be something to do with the way that we're thinking, you know. Anyway, that's how my journey started. I started going, I started off with a hypnosis training actually and of course, I went there to try and help the clients that I was working with. And from there, I realized the power of a process that they did, you know, um, and learning about NLP and timeline therapy and, of course, hypnosis itself. During this process of timeline therapy, it's when I realized that when I looked back on my past using that process, everything was black. It's like I had this great big black cloud over everything. Like, And it sort of explained to me why I didn't have many childhood memories or didn't want to access them at the time. And it was sort of that moment that I thought, you know what, this is this seems like what I've been looking for. I'm ready to go now. So I basically went through and did my um, NLP practitioner, my master practitioner, the trainer's training, all the all the study I could do in less than 12 months because once I started that journey, it, there was no turning back because it worked. It was just so powerful and I was able to let go of all those blocks and limitations and, you know, my bullshit stories, as I like to call them, <laughs> that were stopping yeah. me from achieving. So that was sort of, yeah, um, my foray into NLP and I've been so passionate about it ever since to the point where I believe that, you know, there should be at least one NLP coach in every household globally. Yeah, I did I did actually see that on your LinkedIn profile. I was like, wow, I mean, obviously you're committed to affecting real change. And, you know, obviously if you can get, uh, I guess, into the family nucleus with this kind of thinking and practice um, and start family first, which is what I sort of sensed from where you were coming from, um, then real change and transformation occurs. But I do want to say thanks for sharing your story because I didn't know today that that had been your background. And of course, I'm I'm particularly interested in, in this and how through trauma or through these experiences, some people elect to go for change and transformation and others don't. And they stay stuck and they stay burdened and crippled, you know, with with daily life. And so, I mean, I'm just interested in what your thoughts are around that because we all have a story, right? We, we all have, we all carry a story. Some of us have tougher stories than others. So what is it that's the core driver for change? 
I love that question, Karen, and it's probably one that I've been pondering myself for a very long time. I believe that, first of all, we have to get to a point of saying enough is enough. Enough is enough. There has to be a better way. Secondly, and I guess for me, it was finding that right process. I guess the one thing that saddens me the most, more than anything else, is People going to wanting, you know, they finally get to that point, enough is enough, and they invest in themselves and they go do a training, but it doesn't deliver what it's meant to. And I think that then reinforces our beliefs about nothing's going to help me. And I find that extremely saddening and frustrating, you know. So, um, yeah, I think that, and when earlier you said about, you know, some people have more trauma than the other. I always look at that and think we can't really judge that because the intensity of any trauma is subjective to that person. So what for me might be a walk in the park, for someone else might be a 10 on the subscale, as in so traumatic. And and that's what I've found. Like everything we do is subjective to us. And that understanding, I guess, has really helped me and helped me help others to overcome mm some major, major uh, traumas that they were told, unfortunately, as well, that they would never get through. So, um, and I guess for me, that's that's why I'm passionate about what I do. I think that everyone should, um, again, I'm going to say it again, everyone should come through and do this training. And that's why I offer it to anyone mm. and everyone, because it's so important. It works. But there is an aspect where we have to take responsibility for our life because we can sit here all our life blaming others and saying, look, my life will never be how I want it because of what he did, she did, they did. You know, I experienced major trauma. I'll never get through that. It's that point of going, you know what? Okay, I did experience all this stuff. I can't change that. I, nothing I do will ever change that those things happened to me because they did. What I can change now is how I allow them to affect me. And everyone is in that same boat. We all have that choice of allowing it to continually impact us negatively throughout our life or finally saying, you know what, yep, it's done. What can I learn from it? And make the changes and create the life that we want to be, we want to have. That's my biggest thing, knowing now that we can create our own future no matter how traumatic our, our life has been. Mm, but there's a light or well, something, as you said, just you touched on that, that you go enough is enough. There's that moment in time where you do make that definitive choice. And it is a little bit about resilience as well, right? Because not everybody is resilient enough to turn that switch on and, you know, change the course of action, put the boat in a different direction. So um, I guess what we can get out of today is providing some hope for people who are listening that they don't have to stay stuck and they don't have to stay limited, that there is light at the end of the tunnel. And I'm hoping that through the course of our conversation today, you can just share some really practical advice for those people, you know, for all of us, because we're none of us are free, completely free. You know, many of us have inhibitions, you know, some, as you said, and, and they impact us subjectively based, I guess, on our degree of resilience. Um, and I think it's a very fair and equitable way of looking at trauma to go, well, you know, you, you're not sort of being hierarchical about trauma and saying, well, your childhood was worse than mine, therefore. It's actually going, no, it's an even standing, you know, we're standing in the same place. It's actually how we react to this, you know, this challenge, which is going to be the definer, the, the, the course of action correct? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And we can all do it. Oh, absolutely. And yeah. that's the whole thing. And I think um, just to backtrack a little bit, I, when I say, you know, um, enough is enough, that moment didn't happen for me until I was actually in my first training that I went to. What, what was there for me before was knowing that there had to be a better way. I think that's where I started. There had to be a better way. I had to be able to um, be a better person and I knew I wanted to be a better person but it wasn't until I got to the training when we were doing the process of letting go of our um, I hope you don't mind but I usually start off my <laughs> trainings by saying putting up a slide saying I'm a <laughs> I'm a well-educated intelligent woman that says the f word a lot but <laughs> but it's about <laughs> but it is about us um, finally going you know what yeah my story 
um, has defined me up until now, it's no longer going to define me. Enough is enough. And that didn't happen for me until that training and it, that first training. And that's when I thought, you know what, I am here and I am now ready to let go of everything. I'm no longer going to blame anyone else. I'm going to take full responsibility for my life and create that life that I want. Mm-hmm. And now create the life that I deserve, you know. I didn't believe yeah. that then. Like, I, yeah, I obviously didn't believe that then, um, you know, because obviously huge issues with worthiness, deservedness, you know, uh, confidence, all those things. Um, but obviously now, yeah, I can change those words as well, saying, no, I bloody deserve this. <laughs> Absolutely. And there's, there comes a, a – and I hear what you're saying, and just listening and talking with you just even in this short time already, I can see that you're full of energy and uh, you're obviously immensely positive. I think – one of the things I wanted to touch on was this energy piece because we're all we've all been sort of sitting in lockdown and it's hard to be mind fit and proactive at the moment. There seems to be some fatigue. I mean, even in my household, I'm looking around and I'm looking at a lot of fatigue and we're actually doing less in a way, not more. So I'm interested in this mind fit presence in in a time like this, which is challenging. You know, we 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 all have you know, and, and, and the norm, say the normal norm, a nine to five job, most of us, and we're all trying to stay mind fit. But I'm just noticing that there's a great deal of tiredness and exhaustion. So how do we stay mind fit in these challenging times? So I love a video that I've watched that was created by DeWitt Jones, who was a former photographer for National Geographic magazine. And it was about him looking for, you know, let's celebrate what's right. Yes, um, a lot of the nations, a lot of countries have experienced, like, you know, Australia itself, you know, our major um, states have basically been in lockdown for a very, very long time. And But it's about looking at that and going, okay, let's celebrate what's right. So DeWitt Jones says, you know, celebrate what's right, look for what's right. But we have to train ourselves to do that because, unfortunately, the societal norm, we, you know, even if we're looking at what the media is um, presenting to us with regard to COVID, um, coronavirus, um, all the, the things that we hear on the TV or the radio are all filling us with fear. Now, when we're filled with fear, we come from a place of our primitive brain is what they call it, you know, our fight-flight-freeze response, all right? So when we come from that place, we're basically acting on autopilot, going back to our our instinctual um, uh, reflexes, I suppose, where we call it automaticity, as in we're not even thinking about what we're doing. We're just allowing it to happen, so on autopilot. And as we're going uh, through what we're going through at the moment, I think it's even more important for us to become more aware, aware of our thinking patterns, aware of our behaviours, aware of our actions. And starting, and a way to start that is by celebrating what's right, you know. Um, for me, like, I love that I can stay in my pyjamas and Ugg boots for as long as I want to until I have to do a Zoom call and then, you know, I think, oh, gee, I better put something decent on. But it is about looking at, um, you know, probably Zooming out. So right now we're caught in the moment because all we're thinking about is, oh, my God, I'm locked down, um, I can't do anything else, you know, so we're having these ruminating thoughts going through our mind about how bad it is. But if we gave ourselves the opportunity to Zoom out, and, you know, sort of, you know, pretend that, you know, we can hover basically and go as far back as we want to, to get a better perspective of what's happening around us, you know. So when we do that, it's look for what is right, you know, and you might see, you know what, I can have a cup of coffee whenever I want to, no matter how big or small it is. It's about trying to look for what is right in the circumstance because, again, you can't change the circumstance. It is what it is. How can you make it the best for you, you know? Uh, yeah, and I like the way you visualised that, Cherry, with, you know, hover out so that you're kind of sitting on top of everything rather than being sort of embroiled in it, which is kind of what drags you down. And I, what I'm sensing from what you're saying here is that you're practising gratitude. Yes, I think that, um, I mean, I wake up every morning and I'm, and I'm grateful. Like, I, I just look around and there is so much beauty, but it wasn't always that way. I've trained myself now to do that. I don't run on autopilot. Like if I get a feeling in, in, in my body, because we all know the mind-body connection. Now, our body doesn't get that 
anxious feeling or that, you know, um, oh, what's going on feeling or fear or anything like that, unless it's based on something that we're thinking. And a lot of the time we don't know that's what we're thinking. We feel this sensation in our body and we go, oh, my God, what's happening? You know, what's going on for me? But we don't stop and say, what thought did I just have that caused that reaction? Yeah. If we can step back again and go and try to catch those thoughts, like really, you know, um, catch the thoughts so we can turn off that autopilot and actually go through our day, like I say, with volition, you know, being aware and conscious of what it is that we're doing. Mm. Okay, so that's the degree of mindfulness that you're talking about here. It, it is, yeah. It's about catching, yeah, it's absolutely, it's about catching our thoughts and, and asking ourselves, okay, what was that thought that made me feel that way? Because we don't feel shit just because. We feel crappy because of what we're telling ourselves, what we're saying to ourselves, the thoughts that we're thinking. And once we become aware of that and allow ourselves to have different thoughts, it makes a massive difference. Totally. Yeah. And yeah, I hear you. And, you know, you've sort of paraphrased the next question because I was going to ask you about negative chat, negative chatter. And I think some of us struggle a little bit more with that than others. So negative chatter where you just can't switch off these these thoughts that just keep running through and then they really end up kind of defining um, how you feel that day or in that hour. Um, and often that negative chat is self-limiting and it's very hard to actually reshape thinking when all of that's going on. So what would be a useful way of, of countering that, a practical way? Yeah, well, I, I call that negative chatter the itty-bitty shitty committee. So <laughs> we have it going on in our mind all the time. It's like we've got our very own, you know, committee um, having discussions about, you know, how bad we are, you know, how hopeless we are at doing things, how we can't do anything right, you know. This committee that sort of basically is sitting there yapping in our ear all the time telling us how um, bad we are at things. So, again, no, it's understanding that that committee is actually our own thinking. It's only it's our own thinking patterns. It's ourselves telling ourselves that based on what our beliefs are about ourselves. Or it could even be about others. It doesn't necessarily have to be negative chat about ourselves. You know, it could be that we're just skewed in the way that we view others and situations, which then can become very limiting, self-limiting. Absolutely, absolutely. And that comes from how we filter information. You see, we're bombarded with between 2 and 12 million bits of information per second from the world around us, you know. So everything that's happening, mm. you know, we're, we're being bombarded with this information. But what we take in is only 134 bits. So our mind compresses that information in a millisecond basically to 134 bits and those 134 bits are based on what we are directing our attention to. So if we're looking at somebody and saying, you know, um, man, they're so... Or she's such a, I'm going to use the words, like, you know, she's, she's, she's such a bitch, yeah? We're not allowing ourselves to see all the great things about her. Now, if we're, our belief is that she is one way, we're only going to see her that way. We can't help. So that's why we have judgment with it. But once we understand that everybody filters this information differently, you know, it's about asking that question, like, you know, what's going on for them? I wonder why they're acting that way. I wonder why they're behaving that way. You know, and it gives us the opportunity to say that's because they're filtering differently. Their beliefs are different. Their life experiences are different. You know, the language that they use is different. So it's about um, becoming aware of what it is that we believe about ourselves and mm. and then asking questions. I think there's three great questions. When that itty-bitty shitty committee is happening, it's about saying, you know, okay, what is actually true about this? Is any of it true? Or going, you know, what am I focusing on? So it's about zooming out and going, am I focusing on me not being good enough? You know, so let's zoom out and see what is it that I've missed. So the first question is, what am I focusing on? The second one is, you know, um, what meaning am I giving things? Because you see, in life, nothing has a meaning until we give it a meaning. So no matter what happens to you, we always have the opportunity to give it a different meaning. How do you do that? I, well, <laughs> Viktor Frankl, who wrote Man's Search for Meaning, in there, and I'm going to paraphrase this, but what really got me about um, a verse in there was um, he says along the lines of, between stimulus and response, so between a situation happening and our response to it, there is a gap, and in that gap lay our freedom. 
that for me was really powerful. So what that meant to me was that something happens. I don't have to react or respond straight away. I can take a moment and then make a choice on how I want to respond. So again, it's coming out of autopilot, becoming aware, giving yourself the opportunity to pause and go, okay, I can have that mean this so I can react in a really whatever angry way or I can get it to mean like, wow, I wonder what's going on for them. And immediately you can see how I'm going to react differently if I ask that question first. Or I can choose, you know what, I'm not going to let them get my goat this time. I'm going to react differently. Well, choice is pretty empowering, isn't it? I mean, when people have choice. But we don't realise that we have choice, Karen. That's the thing. We, when we're doing before we start this journey, we don't know that we have choice. We think that there is only this way to react. We think there is only this way to, to you know, respond. Yeah, yeah. I think I think you have to sort of learn that you've got choice and that you're not going to be sort of stuck in one in a one-dimensional kind of route around stuff that's sort of challenging. And I guess that's part of the in um, the NLP, right? Is actually going through the process of um, unpacking and finding all the layers sort of underneath, which help you to you know live a more empowered, uh, mindful life. Um, I, I wanted to touch a bit, you know, you've talked about the fight and flight mode of the brain and we've we've actually had some interesting guests on at Source podcast talking about the brain and just, you know, neuroscience. Um, in fact, one of my last guests was sort of a bit of an expert on neuroscience and we, we talked about the negativity cycle and how as humans and, and the brain and how it operates with negativity, we tend to latch on and have quite finely tuned memories around bad experiences and that as humans we're not sort of wired to kind of hardwired to remember all the good stuff. Um, I'm just interested in that from your perspective. Uh, why as humans we do have some, you know, destructive leanings and we've got the strong survival instinct, but where do these self-limiting thoughts sort of come from? Unfortunately, we download a lot of them, Karen, like, you know, most of them aren't even ours. We've downloaded them from the people around us as people that we hold in high regard. And, you know, just to touch on that, I think it's very, very important for people like, you know, teachers, doctors, mm. anyone, yeah. that, you know, that we, you know, we, we, we go to and hold in that, you know. Um, high regard, yeah. So whatever they say, it's like... Um, it, it, we just download it, we take it on board as if it's absolutely accurate. So if you've had um, a parent or a teacher or someone say, you know, you'll never be good at that, you'll never be able to do math or you'll never learn, you know, um, and we, we ourselves have these sayings, well, we tend to take it on board, then it's like a self-actualising prophecy, really. And it's, it, <laughs> yeah, but the, the, the events that we remember are those ones that had a intense emotional attachment to them. So we call them significant emotional events. They're the ones that we can remember, yeah, the ones that we keep going back to all the time, you know, um, the ones we refer to when we describe to someone what our life is like. So unfortunately, for whatever reason, and I don't know why, whether, whether it's where we're innately programmed that way, but we tend to attach these emotional um, intense feelings and sensations to negative events, those things that went wrong, mm. rather mm. than all those joyful moments that we had. And I can speak from experience. I could not remember any fun times or good times that I had uh, growing up as a young girl until I cleared all those limitations, until I cleared all those negative emotions surrounding events. And then even to this day now, I will have pop up some great memories that I never knew were there before. Our mind is amazing. It actually represses memories that aren't good for us. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I have heard that, that with trauma, there becomes sort of like a blockage or barrier or you can't dig in and do the recall. And that's just the body or the mind protecting you from that trauma. Um, it's interesting. Do you think the brain is like butter? It's, you know, really malleable and uh, flexible or? Definitely. You know, yeah. yeah, definitely. Do you think, absolutely. Do you, do you think the plasticity, okay. neuro, neuroplasticity, absolutely. We can create new pathways and that's why we can change our thoughts at any time. That's why we can change, you know, our circumstance, our reality at any time. Um, definitely neuroplasticity, like, you know, um, our, our brain is malleable. You know, just because we think this thought today doesn't mean that that thought has to remain there for the rest of our life, unless it's a good one. 
if I know mm. I've got a thought that's serving me well or, you know, um, creating good feeling, good energy in my body, of course I'm not going to do anything with that one, but it's the ones that I know bring me down or, you know, have that heavy feeling or don't um, uh, aren't steering you in the direction that you want to go. They're the ones that we want to change and it is absolutely possible, absolutely possible. Like I've worked with people who've experienced um, incredible traumas, like one gentleman who... Uh, as a young lad, had been uh, chronically bullied by a much older um, teenager. And, of course, one day he said he went behind a counter in a house and took out a bread knife to protect himself. And, of course, this this, this bully come along and in his defence he stuck out this knife and, unfortunately, it um, uh, severed a, a major... Um, mm. organ in the body and that bully actually did die. So this young lad ended up going into um, uh, a child, I can't think what they're called now, like the, where they go in for... Um, like a youth a youth uh, remand kind of environment. Yeah, that's yeah. right. So then while he, while he was there, he was chronically raped by the wardens or whatever they're called at that time. So when he went and finally got the courage to go and tell someone about it, um, unfortunately, his reward for that was to have it happen again. So by, by two people this time, not just one. And then he attended the Falklands War and watched his best mate have his head blown off. Now, this man was told he would never get over that PTSD. And interestingly enough, he was actually only on um, on stage during a training do a demo, as the demo, um, doing the demo with me, where we released two negative emotions and... From that day on, he himself says he's never experienced another case of PTSD again. So wow. for someone to go through something like that and overcome it in such a short time, we can do yeah. anything. We are so powerful, Karen. Like our ability to be able to transform our lives is huge. Mm. The unfortunate mm. part is that nobody tells us that. Nobody tells yes. us that. They tell us we're stuck with it. I mean, mm. again, I work with people with clinical depression who've been told they'll never get over it you know, mm. and in less than mm. eight hours going through the process, they are through it, you know. Mm. So it's – but they have to take responsibility for their life. They have to want to let it go. Yes. Yeah, that's a big a big key there. And, you know, when you're talking about letting go and going through that sort of method, if you like, is that the programming part of um, – NLP is that what that's referencing? Because programming sounds a little analytical and a little bit computery. You know, like it's hard to take that word and apply it to human emotions. Programming, but this method that you're sharing, are you saying that going through this process is the programming part of NLP, the experiential? It's definitely experiential. So NLP is one of those things that you know. Um, you, it has to be experiential. You can't get the gist of it just by reading a book. So it'll be <laughs> the analogy that I've used before, and it is a little bit crass, I have to admit, but it's about reading a book about sex and believing you know what sex is like, yeah? So, you know, until you have the experience of it, you have no idea. So it's a bit like NLP. You need to experience it to understand how powerful it is. So the programming aspect of it is what we refer to as our behaviours, our actions, our results. So, again, we're programmed to believe there's only one way to do something. We're programmed to believe there's only one, you know, uh, one way to respond to a situation or we're programmed our behaviours. Like, um, so all everything that we sort of download, like I said, our beliefs and everything like that are basically, you know, then... Um, I guess, develop those programs that we run, yeah? Do you ever have any conflicts with ethics? Because if there's not sort of one way, you know, to do it, because we're all sort of, as you say, we're hardwired to do things from, say, influences in our lives. So we've got our own kind of code, if you like, the way that we live. We have our, you know, the way we live life. But you're, you're saying that through this sort of experiential um, enactment of doing and feeling it differently, uh, there's actually alternate pathways. I wonder in some of that, in, in that treatment plan, if you like, or that, that solutions uh, framework, whether you've ever encountered any ethical or sort of moral dilemmas as people start to work through what it might mean for them. 
to be freer in their minds or because it doesn't sound like it's black and white, that there's a right way or a wrong way. And I guess I was just interested in whether there are any ethical or moral um, challenges that come out of this. Um, interesting question. And you're absolutely right. There is no right way or wrong way to do it. Um, I, and that's why I love the flexibility of it. You design it for the person that you're working with or you're, that you're coaching or in therapy so that it works for them. But there are things that some people hold on to um, the problem. Sometimes the problem they have gives them more benefit than what they can see that they'd be able to get if they didn't have the problem. So, for example, I had a young man I was working with who'd been diagnosed from the age of 10 with clinical depression and had been on medication since he was 10 years old. He came to see me when he was 27 and he was getting results. But when, I, when we get to a point and ask the question, is there anything that would stop you from letting go of this problem completely? And he said, well, what would I do as a job? Now, he's an extremely talented young man, like extremely talented when it came to computers and IT and all of that. But he's never worked a day in his life because he'd been medicated, he'd been on benefits, and he could not get past um, the fact that what would he do if he wasn't having this money coming in? Um, it would affect his freedom, so he thought, if he got better. The only ethics there, I believe, are um, people themselves, I guess, stopping themselves from creating what they want. Or alternately, they do create what they want, you know, um, however you yeah. look at it in that regard. My thing is, yes, absolutely, everything that we do, and I know it's like anything, like because we are talking about language and conversational, um, lang influential language and that. So it does come to, you know, your integrity, you know, but my with my trainings, for example, if there is any sniff for me from someone looking to use it in a manipulative or non-ethical way, they're out. I, I, I will not allow it because what I have found is what I teach people in and what I use has an, a massive effect on people positively and that's how it should be used. But it's like yeah. anything. You think about, you know, if you have a police officer, they can use their... Um, Tactics, yeah. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Same as a nurse, same as, you know, anyone. You know, they can use it in the way that it wasn't intended, but it comes down to your intention, absolutely. Um, but it is such a powerful, powerful way of being able to have people see that they can overcome anything, they can become the best version of themselves, that mm. they can be successful, whatever success means to them, absolutely. Mm. I'm really interested in some of the, um, I guess, some of the benefits with what you're offering, and we'll go into that a little bit more soon, but from what I understand, the programs that you offer uh, bring positive shifts in finance and abundance, career and success relationships, the whole sort of spectrum of relationships, health and fitness and spirituality and connection. And so that's a very three-dimensional kind of view, right, around the benefits of, of what you're offering. Um, so if, if, if people did want to sort of get in touch and, you know, for example, let's just pick off improving finances and abundance, just break some of this down, what does that actually mean? Yeah. So what we do, um, Karen, we look at what are their beliefs behind that? You know, what do you believe about finance? What do you believe about your ability to be able to have abundance? And if there are any limitations there or beliefs that don't serve you, the processes that we use allow you to actually let go of those. So literally we're knocking down the hurdles, you know, per se. We're knocking down the hurdles. So there's nothing standing in your way to achieve that success. But it comes from identifying what those blocks are first. Because a block for me around money was I was born in a communist country. So my parents, you know, money was a dirty word. People who had money were evil. You know, so I had a lot of blocks around money and finance and abundance that I had to clear, but I had to become aware of what they were. Now, your blocks might be totally different or you might have grown up in a household where um, you're encouraged to be an entrepreneur, you know, you're encouraged or, or told that money was good. Um, so, again, it's subjective to everybody, but it's identifying what they are and whatever they are, we know that we've got the tools, um, the processes to be able to let them go so that, you know, again, we're changing that pathway. So you're no yeah. longer running that same path. We've changed it and you're now going in a different direction knowing that abundance is there for everyone. Yeah, I like that. You've explained that really clearly. So, and, and, and that, 
that spectrum, that three-dimensional view that I just listed just before, which is anything from finance and abundance right through to spirituality and connection, what area would you see people struggling with the most in this kind of modern age of ours? Would it be relationships? I think can, mm, that, that's, that's a great question. I'm just going to ponder that for a moment. Yeah, that's okay. Yeah, I mean, I wasn't on our formal question line, but I'm just sort of, I'm just sort of interested. Yeah, yeah. I love, I love questions, you know, um, like that. Um, I, I think it actually comes down to believing that we're not enough. I think that's a universal male, female. It comes down to believing we're not enough. So with that belief, it affects all those areas of life. Mm, Self-worth or lack of. Self-worth, lack of, yep. Believing that we're not good enough, smart enough, you know, beautiful enough, um, you know, that we're not rich enough or or anything like that. Just that, you know, if we can bring it all in, it's just a belief that we're not enough. And once we can actually clear that, it's amazing how many of those other limitations drop away. Oh, that's really interesting. And do you think that has been sort of largely at play because others have told that's just a human condition where we pass that down from one to the intergenerational kind of thing? Yep, I do. Absolutely, I do. Um, And like Bruce Lipton in his book, um, Biology of Belief, says that, you know, it all comes down to nature um, and nurture. Basically anything, you know, even when it comes to health or disease, um, less than, you know, 2% is actually genetic from that. The rest of it is nature and nurture. So it's about understanding that we have got so much control over our lives. We've got so much control over our bodies, our health, our thinking, our, you know, our circumstances. Um, it's really exciting. But how do we get that out there to people so that they know themselves? So that's, you know, I was going to just ask you about success because what I love about, you know, talking to you today is that it's not a shiny thing that you can just acquire. You actually have to work for it so that you've got to actually do the journey to have the glow and the energy and the kind of the the, the, the fullness that you clearly have. So what to, to be able to be successful and to work towards that and measure it, I guess, go, well, I feel successful or I've achieved success. What in your kind of mind are the five principles of what success might look like? Okay. So I believe first and foremost is it's, it's knowing what you want. You know, a lot of us can sit here and, and very easily say what we don't want, but it seems to be a little bit harder to say what we do want. Yeah. So it's about looking at that. So, and we call it knowing your outcome. Okay. What is it that you want? And if you can, in your imagination, put yourself out there, because again, success is subjective. You know, some people have um, extreme talents. So for example, my daughter, she's an incredible singer, but she doesn't want to be a celebrity. She doesn't want to go out there and have the fame and fortune. She just wants to enjoy her singing. That's success for her. Whereas for someone else, that may not be enough. So it's about knowing your own outcome. What is it that you want and putting yourself out there? And then what are the, what's that sensory experience? When you have that outcome or that success that you want, what's that going to look like for you? What's it going to feel like for you? You know, what's it going to sound like? All right. And, but getting very clear on that, but that comes back to even um, even conversations, Karen, like what's your outcome for a conversation? Put yourself out there so then, and then you can work your way back and say, okay, what is it that I need to say to get that outcome, right? Mm. Same as our goals, our results, you know, anything. What's the outcome? So knowing that first, so that's probably the major principle, but getting that sensory experience. So you're imagining you've got that outcome now. What's it going to look like, sound like, feel like for you, Yeah. Then it's about taking action because nothing happens without us taking action. And and that action doesn't have to be massive. What's one small step you can take today that's going to lead to that? Or what's what's one major thing? So the question is, what can I do? Or what is it, what do I need to stop doing (laughs) to be able to achieve that outcome? So the second principle of success really is taking action. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So then... The third one is in, in NLP terms, we call it sensory acuity. So, but that means just really having the observation skills, you know, being able to map where you're at in relation to where you want to be. 
Are you heading in the right direction? Are you doing the right things? You know, it's about being able to assess. And probably sensory acuity is a little bit of that zoom out. Zoom out and have a look. Where are you at in relation to that goal or that outcome that you want? Are you getting there? Are you going in the right direction? So you'd have that, you'd have, you'd, into, I mean, the, this, this list of five, not necessarily in any order, right? Because zooming out, being strategic and then taking action Absolutely. is probably, yeah. So it's not that this list has any sort of particular order. The only order, I guess, is knowing your outcome. What is it that you want? Okay. That would yep. have to be, that has to be top of the list. Otherwise, okay. you know, you'll be going here, there and everywhere because you don't actually know what direction you're heading. Yeah, that's a good point. Okay. So knowing mm -hmm. your outcome and then taking the action, having the sensory acuity, the observation skills to be able to determine where are you at in relation to what you want. Yeah. And then having the behavioural flexibility. So it's about sometimes in our mind when we uh, want to achieve something, we believe, again, there's only one way to be able to do it. But for us, it's about having that behavioural flexibility and knowing that we can adjust or adapt um, to anything that, you know, we're presented with to make sure we continue on the path to reach our outcome, yeah? Mm -hmm. So it's a bit like you might be heading, I'll use the analogy here in Australia, I might be heading from Adelaide to Melbourne. You know, we've got the major highway, the Princess Highway that goes there. Now, if there's a detour on that road, I'm not going to get to that detour and go, oh, my God, I can't get to Melbourne now because I can't go the way that I'd mapped out and planned out. All I do, if I have to, is change it on my GPS and we go a different way. Sure, but I mean, neurodiverse people, you know, would struggle with that, right? I mean, <laughs> it's yeah, but, that, but that's because a lot of that comes to, you know, we feel like we have to control everything, you know. But again, with what we do, we can let go of control, and it's amazing how that opens up, you know, um, what is possible for you. I'm just going to ask you on that neurodiverse piece, um, again, not on the formal question line, but do you work with people who have Asperger's or they're on the spectrum of autism um, at all? Um, I have. the What I find that with autism and Asperger's, sometimes uh, it goes back to what we call generational, um, which is very interesting, and it's based in fear. So, um, yeah, but that, yeah, that's probably, probably a, a An another <laughs> conversation podcast. for another time. Yeah. Okay. But okay. it comes back Fair to enough. fear. So, yeah, yeah. But interestingly enough, I'm working with a young girl who has, who has just recently been diagnosed with Tourette's. And unfortunately, and again, this is where I go, don't do that, you know, but she's been told that it's incurable. Now, you uh, think about that. As soon as you're told that, you, you, you take on that belief and then... Locked and loaded. Locked yeah. and loaded, yeah. So um, what's happened now, like we're going through the process and the first thing is like, yeah, unravelling that belief so that she realises that anything is possible. And we've just got her down to... Um, so we did it in a like a um, measured her tick basically in a three hour block, and she was doing twenty five up to up between nineteen and twenty five in that three hour block. And after our first session, that in a similar block, it went down to seven. So wow. it's amazing, but it's still that you're still working with a belief now because she's been told it's incurable. So yeah, mm, yeah, so it's tough. I'm sorry I did interrupt you because we were at four. You gave me three, three great three. Um, so you yeah, know, principles know of your success. Outcome, know what you want. Yeah, you know, know your outcome same as knowing what you want. Uh, taking action, having the sensory acuity or the observation skills. Zoom out, zoom in, and behavioural flexibility. Being able to alter your course of action so that you are heading towards your goal. Yeah, and then the last one is operating from a physiology and a psychology of excellence. And that's when people go, what the hell is that? <laughs> and it's basically if you wanted to be successful, so you know your outcome, you know, you might determine um, what that success is for you. So if um, just maybe just um, might be easy, Karen, do you have a goal or do you know someone of, who wants to achieve something? And I'll try to put it into a context where it's easy to, easier to understand okay. a lot of in real life things. I do, I do. But I want to talk to that a little bit because I find that when people um, are asked sort of what their strengths are or what their goals are or what their, their mission is and their purpose statement, people, including myself, kind of clam up. And you kind of instantly, you're like tense and you start to get a dry mouth because you sort of go, well, you know, I've got something really insignificant. Like, I just want to make sure my dog kind of lives to 12 years of age or, you know, like it's a difficult one to kind of package up. 
<laughs> so I'm going to talk about my son because I find it hard talking about myself, ironically. But he's 19. <laughs> he's and that's why I'm interviewing you today. Um, but <laughs> he's he's 19 and he's um, you know an entrepreneurial sort of creature. And he'd really like to own a home by the time he's 21 and sort of obviously owning property is a tough one. He's got a great little business that he's sort of working hard in. And he's got a very clear picture that he'd like to be a property owner by about 21 and he's going to have mates that have jobs and they're going to come in and they're going to pay the rent, which is going to help him with his mortgage. And he's going to need X amount to be able to acquire the property. You know, so I guess that's his goal. Good. Yeah. So I'm sharing sharing a goal. This is a kid that can visualize. So where does he go to from here? Love it, love it. So then when we're talking about operating from a physiology and psychology of excellence, so with him now having that very clear vision of wanting to own a home, how is he going to carry himself? You know, what sort of action is he going to be taking? Is he going to be walking around like slumped, you know, and sort of dragging his feet? I doubt that very much. He's going to be standing up tall because he knows what he wants. You know, so he's coming from a place of excellence. He's he's coming from a place of drive and determination. Yeah. So he's really carrying himself, you know, the physiology of excellence. And then the psychology as well. You know, as we think about our goals, are we thinking, oh yeah, I want to have that as a goal, but there's no way I can get it. You know, so is that is that coming from a psychology of excellence? It's not, but it's about okay. identifying, okay, what is it that I need to clear there so that I am really, again, focused on what I want, strong in the mind, knowing that I'm going to achieve that. Um, so when we're saying operating from a physiology and psychology of excellence, you know, to be successful, how are you going to carry yourself? What are the thoughts, the beliefs that you're going to have? Like all those things and, you know, what's it going to take for you to be able to stand in that body and have those thoughts to be able to achieve that you know and that's really interesting I want to ask you a question about just generational response to that because my son who's 19 tunes into a lot of motivational speaking Gary V and there's a lot particularly out of the United States I mean I know you're a follower of uh, is it Tom Robbins or Tim Robbins right I've seen him in action Tony Robbins I've seen him in action you know, they're very pumped, aren't they, the Americans, the Yanks? They kind of know how to do it, bring a message home. Um, you know, that generation seems to be very tuned into the psychology of excellence. I wonder whether, you know, my generation and the boomers and, and the exes, uh, whether we have had a lot of that kind of programming, that self-worth debate, which obviously counters the psychology of excellence. Mm-hmm. So do you do you find yourself working with people, you know, more my age than you would a young person because they're not as challenged around that framework? No, not at all. Um, and in fact, the the age range is extremely diverse because the you know the 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 young people have um, issues of their own that we're not aware of. You know, we're talking about, you know, when we're talking about cutting, you know, they've got this emotional pain that they're trying to release and they do it by by self-harming, like cutting. Um, there's a lot of pressure for them to now. You think about the young people going to university, there's a lot of pressure on them to to do that and then a good, get a, an amazing job and a lot of them just go to university because it's felt like that's what they have to do. It's not what they want to do, yeah? So yeah, there's, yeah. there's different pressures on them as well. You know, I look back and I think, you know, the generations ago when really the occupation choice for females at the time was teacher, nurses, nurse, receptionist, yeah, secretary, yeah. you know, there wasn't much Typists. choice. Yep. Yeah. There wasn't much choice. Now you go to university and, like, I look at the the list of things that you can study and I think that's overwhelming in itself. How And how on earth are you going to know at the age of, you know, 16 or 15, 16, 17 what it is that you want to be? Or do sure, you know. I think that's always been a dilemma, hasn't it, it? Absolutely, you know. Our life experiences, you know, and and again, when people say, you know, what is your purpose? I think my purpose is to, you know, live a good life, <laughs> whatever that means for anyone, you know. Yeah, well, I think you've got to workshop that. It's an incredibly <laughs> com- incredibly complex question that I think many of us would struggle to answer, you know, because our lives are sort of overloaded. I want to ask you about happiness. Gosh, that's a big topic, isn't it? But, um, you know, and I've had some really interesting analogies surface over time that you can have someone who's got $500 million. Are they actually happier than the person who has $500? And 
Um, it's a debate that I find quite interesting, actually. So I'm just sort of interested in your perspective about happiness. Do you think, A, we can be truly happy, um, given that it's, you know, human nature to sort of compare and, and criticise? What are your thoughts? The answer is definitely yes, a definitive yes. Yes, we can be truly happy. And that doesn't come from material possessions or anything else. And, and my thing is, like, with all the study that I have now done and what I know now, I feel that, you know, if everything was taken away from me, what have I got left? And that's me, yeah? That's all that yeah. will be left. And I want me to be a bloody good place to be if that's all yeah. I've got. So, but the happy, like, you think we can, we can be happy in any moment, because you think back, you know, about a time when, you know, um, I don't know, think of a, a fabulous party that you went to that you knew you were just laughing and dancing and having a great time and how happy you were then. You could just go right back to that moment now and have those feelings of happiness come up. It's about us being able to, um, and, and I think, though, what we search for is this euphoric happiness. But for me, life is... A balance, like it's 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 always. I call it like a wa a, a wave, just a, a little wave. I'm not sure how to describe it on audio, but it's this little wave. Like you know, rather than having like the tsunami effects of I'm really ecstatically happy and then I'm down into the dips of despair, you know, and we're going up like that. Mm. So I call that the tsunami. But it's about balance. It's knowing that um, you're feeling good all the time, even though you know life will throw things at you and um, you'll have some shit moments. But knowing yeah. that they won't last, because uh, earlier on you asked about a measure. Well, for me, the measure of success when it comes to our mind fit work that we do is how quickly you can overcome the problems. Yeah. So for me, it's about resilience. Resilience is about knowing, you know. Um, Ten years ago, if I'd experienced something, it might have taken me three months to get over it. If I experience the same thing now, it might be two minutes. Right? Yeah. So yeah. resilience, and you only learn it by doing it. You That's only learn it by doing it. Yeah. But happiness is there. It's intrinsic. It's in all of us. And I guess, Karen, the one thing that I often say to people that I work with and people who come to my trainings is, you know, we can't have um, sadness. We can't have depression without having the total opposite in us already. All right. So okay. it's knowing that happy is there all the time. How do we tap into it? That's the key. Yes. It's deciding yeah. and deciding that we want to. Yeah. Mm. Because unfortunately, yeah, societal norms will tell us you can't be happy all the time. Well, who says? Yeah. But I think as you pointed out, you know, happiness isn't a Red Bull moment. So if you think about sustained happiness or sustained energy and, you know, Red Bull, bolcha, you know, you've got your, you've got your fix for sort of an hour, but then you're going to kind of come crashing down. Um, it's just understanding that emotional spectrum and going, well, we're not going to be sort of peaking out. Um, happiness is actually probably something, uh, possibly a little more steady that it's a state of being as opposed to an impulse or a reaction, you know? Am I sort of making sense? Yes, yeah, absolutely. And I love the way that you said that too. It's a state of being. So knowing like, you know, I know people who go, uh, who wake up in the morning, they have all these rituals and routines they do. And I know Tony Robbins is a person who teaches all those things. I know I wake up in the morning and I feel good. Like I, I can choose, well, I guess you can choose how you feel, but I, did, I don't even make that choice anymore. I wake up and I feel good, even though, mm. you know, we've had some pretty pretty horrid circumstances occur here um, in this last 12 months, but it's a it's still a choice. Like, there are moments when I feel sad, but I, I can't even stay feeling sad for too long now. It comes back to yeah. that balance again, to feeling good. So um, it sounds like, you, you know, you've got a very disciplined um, orientation now after many years of actually doing what you're talking about. I think that's a thing. I've created the pathways that I just can't go back now. I can't go back to, you know, um, well, I used to call myself psycho bitch, you know. I get so angry, um, but I just can't go back to that time now. It's just, you know, that, that, that pathway has been severed and... Yay for that. No, you know? I was going to say, your kids, <laughs> yeah. your kids must be pretty happy about Yay that. Yay for that, you know. So, yeah. Um, but, yeah, I had to invest in myself to do that, Karen. I had to invest myself. But I'm so glad that I invested in that one thing that absolutely worked. You know, it worked for me. So, And, again, yeah. not everyone's going to be the same, but I think you just need a great, yeah, a great trainer. Do you need to, do you need to be a bit, bit more sort of psychologically sort of tuned in to be able to be receptive with NLP? 
Because to me, it doesn't seem like it's a one-size-fits-all approach. Um, I I don't think you have to be tuned in. I think that NLP, I think that's the beauty of it. It's not a cookie cutter. It's not a one-size-fits-all. What it is, it's basically, and that's why I think so many people are um, coming over to NLP because it doesn't matter what you're experiencing or, you know, the trauma that you've had or whatever, it's understanding, basically, you know, NLP is about understanding why you do what you do, understanding yourself, understanding how your mind works, understanding how you filter information, process information. Once you know about yourself, then you're able to make the changes. Until you know that, what are you changing? But that's such a psychologically inclined way of being. And I guess that's my question is, uh, you know, not all of us are sort of psychological creatures from get-go to be able to go that pathway is going to serve me well, like it did for you. So how do you actually educate people to understand that that psychological pathway is going to bring the benefits? Because some people will just take Arapax or... Um, have a McDonald's every, you know, three times a week to cheer themselves up. Absolutely. And, 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 and again, that's the understanding behind it. So we talk about um, values, levels, thinking. So it's a complexity of thinking. And if we can understand where people are at that time, we're able to be able to have conversations with them at their um, level of thinking. You know, because a lot of the time, it's a bit like parents with their children. You know, they'll reprimand a child, but they're coming from this years of wisdom that they have with them and they're expecting the child to understand what they're saying and where they're coming from. It's just not possible. It's just not possible. So you have to you have to be able to explain to the child at their level using the words that they're going to understand and actually, um, yeah, meeting them at where they're at rather than where you're at, you know. So understanding all that, and that's the beauty of what we do. You understand not just yourself, but other people and how they operate. And that's what, when we're talking about relationships earlier, that's what opens up that connectedness, the relationships, because you're able to talk to anyone um, because you've got that understanding about how they operate as well, how they work, the same as you've got an understanding of how you work. So, you know, no longer do you take anything personally because, um, I don't know, it's, it's, it is amazing, I've got to say. Like, you know, we respect everyone's model of the world because everyone's coming from a different place. Everyone's mapped this amazing world differently. You know, they've created their mm. own reality about what's really happening out there. And everyone's reality mm. is different. doesn't mean it's that's, that's true right. or right, right or accurate. Yeah. So um, it's, a, it's a great analogy, by the way. It's nice to sort of have a practical example to sort of get your mind around it. Um, just one last question before we go on to how people can hear a little bit more about what you're offering them. Uh, but I just wanted to ask for our listeners, if they wanted to start implementing, you know, in their daily lives, uh, some sort of uh, mind fit um, practice, uh, how could they do that? How can they begin to start implementing this? I think the best way to start, Karen, is just to ask questions. Ask questions about, you know, um, how is this thought serving me? Or, you know, better yet, it's about asking, okay, what am I focusing on? Is that, uh, is there something more that I can focus on? It's about that zooming out again, you know. What else can I see here? Celebrate what's good in that moment, you know. Um, yeah, so basically three questions, yeah. Um, what are you focusing on? Zoom out and see what's something there that you can celebrate rather than looking at the negative. Look at something, you know, pick one positive, two positives, you know. Um, what meaning are you assigning? Ask yourself, you know, what meaning am I giving this? What meaning could I give it so that I feel better about it, you know? Um, and the third one is what am I going to do? What's the action I'm going to take to make sure that I can look at things differently, that I can give different mm. meanings to it, Yeah. Mm, that's great advice. And if and if people wanted to uh, be part of your workshops or do some one-on-ones, I assume like everybody in this world right now, we're all doing online um, sessions. They can reach you online. But if they wanted to do a workshop, I mean, do you, you're obviously in Australia, but do you travel to New Zealand or do you travel to other parts of the world? How do you do it? I would absolutely love to travel to New Zealand. It's actually one place I haven't been yet, Karen. So, um, uh. <laughs> and yeah, it may not be in the near future. But what I am doing, I'm actually holding, I do do a two-day um, seminar, which is called Release Your Limitations and Master Your Mindset. And I'm actually running a virtual one on the 13th and 14th of November. So, okay. because again, that's the thing. That, that's my um, probably signature program to give people a good taste of what is possible for them so they can start and get an understanding of themselves and other people so that they can, you know, yeah. Excellent. So they can, they can take part in that 
I think I saw that posted on your LinkedIn, right? You had that. Um... Uh, I'm not sure that it's up there yet, but yeah, 13th to the 14th of November, it'll be the virtual two-day Release Your Limitations and Master Your Mindset seminar. Excellent. Okay. Well, I, yeah, I don't know. I thought I saw that. Maybe that was on your website, actually. Could be, yeah. Um, yeah. So that's excellent. That's not too far away. Um, and, and, and how do people reach you? What's the best way to reach you? So they can either ring 1-800-4-SUCCESS or www.successfulminds.com.au or they can email at ask at successfulminds.com.au. That's excellent. There's three strong call to actions there. Love them all too. Look, thanks so much, Cherry. It's been such a pleasure to connect with you today. And um, I've learned some really good things along the way just through our conversation and you've just added so much value to, to our episode today. So thank you. And I look forward to staying in touch with you. Thanks very much, Karen. I thoroughly thanks enjoyed so it. So thank you. Thanks for tuning in and joining our conversation and stay tuned for more episodes. Please rate, review and subscribe. Check out the show notes if you'd like to contact this episode's interviewee. At Source Podcast does not accept any liability for the results of any actions taken or not taken upon the basis of information in this podcast or for any errors or omissions. Those acting upon information do so entirely at their own risk. We recommend that you seek professional assistance from certified doctors for your health and well-being issues.